0: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and you can take those out and turn with me to John the 12th chapter. <clears throat> What's up? Y'all good? It's good to see everybody. Um, I mean, here on this earth, two weeks ago, I would have thought I would have seen you, next time I would have seen you would have been in heaven. Um, I, and my Luann and I had the flu. I don't know how that happened that we both got it together. I will say this, I had it first and gave it to her. Um, but it's good to see you. And then last week we weren't here. And so this this sermon, like it's been a couple weeks since I preached, first of all. So there's even like, oh, do I remember how to preach? And then there's a part of it where this sermon's like a, like a dry sponge. It's just been soaking soaking up more and more and more. So speaking of that, let me get my timer out. And I, I've been editing it cutting and adding and cutting and adding and cutting and adding, but it's such a rich text. In fact, before I read the text, let me just share with you what I think the main point of this text is. Um, I, I was trying to summarize it, and, and this is like the best shot I got, even though it's, it's lengthy even right here. And um, maybe whenever um, we finish reading the text, Miss um, Julie, if you will, if you'll leave that up and let folks write that down because that'll guide you through this text, all right? To guide you through the sermon as well. It's this, Jesus's death, and I think I should add resurrection there. Both Jesus's death and resurrection produces a diverse people who behold the glory of the cross, who serve Him, serve Jesus by following Jesus, who have had their love affair with this present world broken by loving Him supremely, and who are ultimately with Him in heaven and honored by the Father. So a lot there, but that's where we're going in just a short, um, I think, six verses. So John chapter 12, we're going to start in verse number 20. And we will be looking um, and stopping at 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. honor him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word declares that faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. That as your word is preached and proclaimed and read and studied and savored, that you do a supernatural work of giving us faith. Some in the room, they need faith to truly trust in you, Jesus, as that perfect substitute for the forgiveness of their sins. Some in this room may have religion. They may have a baptism certificate. They may have a good heritage. They may be moral, but they've yet to place faith in you. Jesus, you told Nicodemus that, We must be born again. That's a supernatural work. And we look to you as your word is preached to do what we cannot do. To do what they did not instruct us to do as preachers. To do the impossible. So I'd ask for that. And for those in the room whose faith in you may be weak. It may be real, it may be genuine, but it just may be, it may be weak. They may be faltering in their faith. They may be questioning things. There may be circumstances that have occurred in their lives that has left them weak and trembling at the preaching of your word. Would you give grace to trust you more that may we see you, Jesus, being glorified in our midst, And may that break our present love affair we have with this present world. So we may be used of you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You could be seated. We're just going to really just walk through this text. Um, That's what we'll do for the rest of the time. So don't put your Bibles up. Keep them out. We're just going to kind of almost verse by verse walk through this passage of Scripture through these six verses. The first thing John tells us is that some Greeks have come inquiring about Jesus. So the feast that John is referring to here, he says it's the time of the feast. The feast is the, is the time of the Passover. That's the feast that's about to happen, that Jesus will die during the Passover. And we can say tons about that. It's just a picture of that Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb. He is the one that will assuage God's wrath that is coming just like what happened in the book of Exodus in Egypt for the people of God. God provided a lamb and a system for them to apply the blood. It's through the shed, the, the application by faith of the shed blood of Christ that we miss, we skip God's wrath and that we can enter into eternal life. And so during this time, there are many Greeks. Now, we don't know how many Greeks have come, but it must be noteworthy for John to mention that they're in town for possibly for Passover. So maybe these are Greeks who've converted to Judaism. They would have been Greeks who wanted to follow the God of the Bible, Greeks who wanted to follow the law, wanted to know, come into relationship with God. They would have been called God-fearers. So possibly these Greeks are God-fearers, but as they're in town, they, they, they're, they're, um, they, they want to know more about Jesus, their curiosity about Jesus. Possibly they've heard about Jesus, what he did with Lazarus and the raising of Lazarus from the dead, because that's just a few short weeks away that was like two miles from Jerusalem. They're in Jerusalem. Maybe they heard about, where's this guy that resurrected a real dead person? Where is this guy? Possibly they saw the triumphal entry that had just occurred that Pastor Brian preached two weeks ago. And maybe they're like, hey, this, we see all this happening. But nevertheless, they go to one of Jesus's disciples, a man by the name of Philip. Philip goes to Andrew. Possibly they went to Philip and Andrew because both of those are Greek names. So maybe they just recognize them. Maybe one of them knew them. We don't really know. We're just reading it and trying to wrap our minds around it. But they come to Philip and then Philip goes to Andrew and then both of them go together and they tell Jesus, Jesus, there's some Greeks that are inquiring about you. They want to see you. They want to know you. They want to meet you, something. They want to hear your teaching. And here's Jesus's response. Maybe John doesn't include all of it. I think it's a peculiar response, but Jesus' response is recorded for us in verse number 23. It's not permit them to come. It's not, hey, I want to meet them too. Or, but this is what he says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, first, what is this hour that Jesus is speaking of? Well, Jesus is speaking of the hour of his death. Jesus is saying that Greeks seeking me is an indicator that my hour has come. Is to be contrasted with the numbers of times throughout the book of John when Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. Jesus says this in chapter two and chapter five. In chapter seven, in fact, the Jews want to kill Jesus. They go to arrest Jesus, but John writes, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet In chapter 8, no one again arrested Jesus because Jesus's hour had not yet come. But now Jesus is saying, my hour is here. My hour has come. And the indicator of that happening is Greeks, Gentiles, non-Jews, non-religious people are coming, seeking me out. And Jesus says, that is an indicator that my death is imminent. Just like in a few weeks, you and I... Again, by God's grace, we're going to go outside on our front porch and we're going to hear birds chirping, right? Robins are going to begin singing in the air. And for those of us in here, like I think all of us who are Christians who hate winter, we're going to say, praise the Lord, right? We're going to look out into our flower beds or as we drive down the road and we're going to see daffodils beginning to poke their heads up. And we're going to say, praise the Lord. That giant orange orb in the sky that's on fire, you know, has come out like, Once again, for the month of January, it showed up today. Praise the Lord. It'll show up again in February and then towards late February. Early March is going to show up again. And the darkness is today. We're going to, hey, praise the Lord that spring is upon us. Even though spring will not yet be here, but the signs of the times of spring coming. And Jesus says it's the same thing that's happening here. Greeks, non Jews, coming and seeking me out, asking questions about me, that that is an indicator that my hour has come, the time of my death has come. That it seems like just a, a benign thing, a small thing that these Greeks are seeking Jesus out. But what Jesus is saying here, no, no, no. This is a pivotal moment in my life and in my ministry that's about to come. Things are changing. There's a change about to happen. What we have here in this text, and I don't know who first coined this term, but what we have in this text is a series of of gospel paradoxes. That this is the first one in a list in this text of, of gospel paradoxes. And here's what I mean by that is Jesus announces the kingdom of God and it often comes to us in paradoxical form. That things sound as if they're, they're backwards or things sound as if they're, they're upside down. That's what I like to say. It's the upside downness of the kingdom of God. But the gospel and what Jesus is doing here, it's, it's really counterintuitive. I mean, think about this. Greeks who were on the outside. Greeks show up to Jerusalem, but here's the truth. They couldn't go inside the temple. They could come, they were, they could come to the parking lot. Imagine, hey, would you like to come to church? Yeah, I'd love to come to church. I'd love to know more about, well, God, well, here's the deal. Because of your heritage, because of who you are, you can come to church, but you gotta stay in the parking lot. You can't come inside the building. That's the way Greeks were. They could show up to the temple, but the first gate that you entered into was the, the court of the Gentiles. And that's as far as they could go. There was another series of gates and then you got inside the temple. Then inside the temple, there's another section. And so it's all of these little sections, but the first section on the first wall is a huge, do not enter sign to Greeks. And so you have those who are on the outside. They're on the outside religiously. They're on the outside morally. They're on the outside racially. And those folks on the outside are seeking Jesus. And the religious jokers, the ones who think they've got it all together, the ones who should know God, should know his law, should know his word, should know the prophecies, know all those things, the guys on the inside, well, they're plotting and scheming on how to kill Jesus. And so this is the first gospel paradox we have. Those who think they're on the inside are really on the outside and those who are on the outside are really on the inside. But that's carried all throughout scripture. In fact, you may be here today. That's a good news and good word for you. You may be here today and you may think like, you don't know what I've done, pastor. You don't know what my past is like. You don't know the things that i thought, the things that I've saw, the things that I've done with my very hand. Maybe I'm on the outside of God. And what God's saying is no, 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 no. You know who's on the outside? The self-righteous those who recognize their sinfulness and their fallenness; those are the ones who are on the inside. Those who really want to know Jesus and seek Jesus, those are all the ones on the inside. And in fact, what we have in Jesus is Jesus is the one who will open up a way that whosoever will can come to Christ. It's no longer who can come is based upon your heritage or your past. As some of you come from a long line of outlaws and irreligious people. And maybe you're the first in a new line that God's raising up of Christians or religious people. And by God's grace, I can look at, I talk about my grandfather, my my parents, my grandfather. And I tell you stories often about them. But but for me, Christianity and my family, it really began with my grandfather. He was the one that was converted. And then my grandfather went and witnessed to his uncles, to his own father his mother saw them saved, baptized, and a heritage began with my grandfather's obedience. And maybe that could be your story. Before that, it's outlaws. Now, that's on my mom's side of the family. On my dad's side of the family, it's all outlaws. <laughs> Still to this day, pretty much all outlaws. But listen, it begins, where does it begin? It begins with one act of faith in Christ, one step of obedience, of believing and trusting. And maybe that's you, Don't ever think, hey, I'm on the outside and it's forever to be on the outside. No, 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 that's not how God works. Again, he's working things that are upside down. He's inviting those on the outside. In fact, we see this all through scripture, these these gospel paradoxes, all through the gospels of Jesus. And this is what Jesus teaches. Here's my economy. It's so counterintuitive to what we know. My economy is this, that the way up is to go down. And that's what Jesus does with his very own life. Jesus is showing us that the way upward is to go down. We see that in his incarnation. We see that in his life. We see that in where he's born, where he does ministry. We see that over and over and over and over again in Jesus's life. It's the way up is to go down. It's to choose humility. It's the way to glory is through suffering. That the way to be found is first you must know that you're lost. That the way to be great is to serve. That in order to be first, you have to be last. In order to gain all, you must give up all. In order to bear fruit, you must die. In order to keep your life, you must hate your life and let go of your life. And that's what's happening in this text. It's a series of gospel paradoxes. In fact, we see it in, even in this parable. Jesus tries to bring it out by telling his disciples a parable. That's what we have in verse number 24, an illustration. Jesus says this, truly, truly, which just means amen. So I'm telling you, I'm telling you the truth. This is the absolute truth. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat, he says, falls into the earth and dies, that grain of wheat remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The parable is actually pretty simple. It would have been super simple to them. But even for those of us here, we can think about it. You can take a single small grain of wheat and you can take it and you can put it on a plate and you can set it in a room and you can put sunlight on it. You can water it. You can talk to it. You can encourage it. You can do whatever you want to do with that single grain of wheat. But as long as it remains on that plate, it will be no more than a single grain of wheat. But if you take that same single grain of wheat, and you bury it into the ground. And that grain of wheat dies. That is the outer husk around it withers away and dies. What happens to that grain of wheat is it begins to produce new life. A sprout shoots off of it. Roots begin to grow deep. The, the shoot comes up and becomes a sprout, and then the sprout becomes a stalk, and then the stalk produces fruit. It bears fruit. And then you'll have a bunch Of grains of wheat. The one single grain of wheat, when it falls into the ground, it multiplies and bears fruit and produces a bunch of grains of wheat. And what Jesus is saying is, this is an analogy for my very life and for my death. Jesus is telling his disciples that he will die, but it is through his death that new life will come. Through Jesus's death, fruit will come. Jesus is basically saying here, hey, look here, hey, we can continue doing what we've been doing, guys. I can continue teaching what I've been teaching. I can continue producing miracles like I've been producing miracles. I can continue getting on the religious folks' nerves. We can continue doing what we were doing, but we will produce, I will produce, my life will produce no fruit until and unless it dies. No fruit, no harvest, no forgiveness of sins, no salvation, no people, that's the harvest, no people No fruit unless Jesus dies. And Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death. But look at how Jesus speaks of his death. Another gospel paradox. Look at verse number 23. Back up, we'll look at some more of this text. The hour has come, we've talked about that, for the son of man to be glorified. Look at how Jesus looks at his own own death. It is to be glorified. Jesus say, is saying, my death on the cross is a picture. It's a, an emblem of, of, of me being glorified, of, of glory. That the gospel itself is a very paradox in and of itself. I mean, we use that word gospel, but what do we mean by gospel? Well, here's what we mean. It simply means good news. But the picture used in the scriptures when it speaks of this good news is the story of a messenger coming from the battlefield back to the home city in order to make an announcement, in order to tell news of what's occurring on the battlefield. And so as he would come, if he would have a scroll in his hand and he would be waving it, and if he would be yelling, good news, good news, good news, then guess what that means that's happening on the battlefield? We're winning, right? Not that we're losing, hey, we're losing, we're getting debt. That's not good news. But he would say, hey, we're winning. This is good news. Here is the good news. We are winning. But think about this. The gospel is an announcement of Jesus's death, of Jesus on the cross. But even in that, even in the cross of Christ, you have a a paradox that seems upside down. It looks as if Jesus is losing. It looks as if sin has won, Satan has won, death has reigned, and yet it is the upside downness of the kingdom of God that it's through Jesus's suffering and through his death that God is triumphing over all of his foes, that our salvation is being purchased. How? By the death of Christ. And so it's good news, Jesus has died. How is that good news? It's good news because that's the wisdom of God. That's the plan that God has, has chosen. That Jesus is dying in our place, He's taking on our punishment, and that's what Jesus is saying. That all through Jesus's life, He has chosen humility. It's been a life of descent. We see it in His incarnation, Him becoming human. And where is He born? My my little girl, Sephira, she talks about, she wants to sing away in a manger. Actually, she sings away in a manger. And I'll say, Sephira, what's a manger? I want you to know what a manger is, girl. Is it a baby bed? No, daddy. What is it? Well, it's where horses eat. That's right. The king of the universe puts on flesh and comes to be one of us. And where is he born? In some small, remote town that nobody cares anything about. City of Bethlehem. It's in this town that Jesus is born, not in, a, not, in a, 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 not in a palace, but where's he born? He's born in a manger. He's born to royalty? No, no, no. He's born to a peasant family. Then when Mary shows up to make a sacrifice on behalf of Jesus, she, she offers doves. Like that's as low as you could get. Shows her poverty. His dad's a carpenter. Mom's a, basically a Nobody. All through Jesus's life, Jesus is in the outskirts, in the, out nowhere. I mean, could you imagine if a friend came to you and said, you know, I, 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 I found out I've got this horrible disease, got this sickness, this illness, but I found, a, I found a specialist. I found a doctor who's got a clinic in Pauls Grove, Kentucky. Anybody of you, you know where Pauls Grove, Kentucky is? Let's just say it. You can't get there from here, right? Like you, you, like you can't. But it's, it's on the other side of Bald Knob, right? It's way, way out there. If you're from Paul's Grove, like, welcome. You know, we're glad you're here. You drove all the way in. You flew all the way in. You, you rode horses all the way in. We're glad that you're here. But that's equivalent to what Nazareth was. That's where Jesus would take up his ministry. 70 miles from the capital city of Jerusalem. Jesus is constantly choosing humility time and time and time again in his ministry. He doesn't go into Jerusalem and choose disciples of the the smartest and the brightest, the ones that have graduated. No, actually, he grabs fishermen and tax collectors, flunkies, ones who couldn't make it. Jesus personally chooses those men to follow him. And then what does his ministry look like? Is it a ministry of, I mean, he had that for one day. A couple of last, you know, two weeks ago. One day, whenever he comes in for the triumphal entry, but other than other than that, it's humility, humility, humility. Jesus chooses Jesus. In a few weeks, we'll look at it. Jesus is going to take off his outer garments, and Jesus is going to wrap a servant's towel around his waist, and he's going to bend down and he's going to wash those disciples' nasty feet as a picture of Jesus' humility, and then Jesus will go. He'll, be, he'll go into a garden and he'll pray, Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. And he'll be arrested and betrayed and beaten and put on a cross. But what Jesus is saying here, it's at the point of the cross that all that humility junk goes on the wayside. Brother Joe Buckner's got a saying. I never heard it until I met Joe, but he says Tommy Rod." Right, he said, what's all this Tommy Rot we got going on in here? And I think it just means rubbish is what it means. And what, in the words of Brother Joe Butner, the Tommy Rot stops at the cross. We sing a song of the old rugged cross and his true words. In, the, in, that, in that hymn, that blessed hymn that we sing, we say in there, it's an emblem of suffering and shame. And it is, it is an emblem of suffering and shame. Scripture tells us, you know, cursed is anyone who dies upon the, upon the cross, upon the tree. But Jesus will refer to the cross next week when we get there. He'll say when the son of man is lifted up, that when the Romans nailed Jesus to a cross, they lifted him up as a picture of suffering, as a picture of shame. They lifted Jesus up, probably buck naked, lifting him up some, you know, maybe 10 feet up in the air as an emblem of to say, hey, you cross us, you double cross us. This is what you get. They lifted him up as an intimidation factor. But when Jesus says when the son of man is lifted up, he's referring to the cross, but he's not referring to a picture of suffering and shame. He's re- referring to a picture of glory. That for those of us who have been born again that we see the cross. What we see on the cross is we see a picture of God's glory on display. But it's in the cross, it's on the cross that Jesus is the son of man. Like he refers to himself here as the son of man. That's probably Jesus's favorite um, designation for himself. Like if we could go back in time and find Jesus and ask Jesus, Jesus, who are you? He probably wouldn't say I'm the Messiah. He would say, I'm the son of man. And it's from Daniel, the seventh chapter. That's where that comes from. A prophecy that Daniel saw that was written out in Daniel, the seventh chapter, I I think in the 14th verses around in there is where it speaks about the son of man, the son of man, the son of man. And what's happening there is the son of man is the eternal king. That at the point of at the cross, Jesus is displaying, he's showing, he's putting his glory on display to say, I am the Son of Man. And what happens after the cross is no more humility from the point of the cross and for the rest of eternity. It is nothing but glory for Jesus. Jesus will be put in a tomb, but he doesn't stay there as an indication of his glory, he's resurrected. Jesus will come, he'll meet with his disciples, he'll get this whole church thing started and rolling, and then Jesus will spend, you know, a few, like 40 days with his disciples, and then Jesus will ascend. Why does he ascend? I said this a few weeks ago, and I said, like, people, you said Jesus sinned. No, I'm not saying Jesus sinned, I'm saying Jesus will ascend. He will go up he will go into glory, is where Jesus into heaven is where, where Jesus goes. And then what follows there is Jesus's coronation. Like any king who is coronated as king, Jesus will, and that's what uh, Daniel 7 is about. Jesus will have a coronation of his glory. And where is all of this going? Well, Daniel 7 tells us this. Revelation 5 tells us this. Philippians 2 tells us this. In fact, Paul says in Philippians 2 that at the name of Jesus... God will give, he says he's given Jesus a name that is above every name, that even at the mention of Jesus's name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That, that is where we are going with Jesus's life. And what is the turning point? The turning point is Jesus's cross. And Jesus says, though, if I die, I will produce much I will produce much fruit. And then what is the fruit of Jesus's death? What is he referring to when he says, with my death, by my death, I'm gonna enter in just like a grain of wheat. I'm gonna enter in, I'm gonna die and then new life is gonna come up. But then guess what? This grain, of, uh, this, this grain is gonna produce a stalk, basically is what he's saying. And this stalk is gonna produce fruit. What is the fruit of Jesus's death? And here's the answer. We are the church, those who believe and receive Jesus. That Jesus' death is producing a fruit, and that fruit is a harvest of souls, believers, receivers, those who will behold the glory of the cross, those who will believe and receive Jesus' substitutionary death to cover our sins. We are the ones who are the fruit that Jesus is speaking about. But then look. Verse number 25, you and I, our lives enter into Jesus's paradoxical world. He's not done with this set of gospel paradoxes. And like, hey, this only applies to me. No, it applies to us as well. Look at verse number 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. That Jesus's descent and Jesus's humility and Jesus's death and Jesus's sacrifice, it is an example for his followers and you and I must do the same. That we must choose the same path, the same trajectory that Jesus chose. We are to choose that For our lives as well. Those who want to follow Jesus. Those who want to know Jesus. Those who want to serve Jesus. Those who want to be honored by the Father. We must, verse number 25, we must hate our life in this world. This isn't something flippant that Jesus is saying here. This is a foundational teaching and a foundational truth that Jesus has said some I don't know, five or six times throughout his teaching, throughout the Gospels. You can go back and you can see it in Matthew 10, in Matthew 16, in Mark 8, in Luke 9, in Luke 14, and in Luke 17. That what Jesus is saying, this is foundational truth for those of us in the room who want to follow after Jesus, who want to be a Christian, who want to be a disciple of Christ. Jesus is saying this to us. Whoever loves his life, you lose it but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It's the same picture that Jesus says he will do. You are now the grain of wheat. You are the seed that will have to choose death in order to produce new life. That is what Jesus is teaching. That whoever loves his life, whoever holds on to this life, whoever clings to this life, whoever sees nothing beyond this world, whoever lives like that, whoever lives like this life is all that there is, that in this end, in the end, you will lose your life. And this life is all that you get. this goes with so much of what Jesus has said. Don't lay treasures here on this earth where rust and moth and thieves can steal them away, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. It's the same thing Jesus is saying here. It's the same encouragement he's giving here. There was, a, there was a book written several years ago uh, called Your Best Life Now by Joel Olstein. Um, maybe some of you read it. I'll be honest, I, I haven't read it, but I can tell you this, that for many, this is their best life now. Like the truth is the your best life now isn't altogether a bad title for a book. That if it was a book written to unbelievers, it would be true. That for unbelievers, those who have yet to place faith and trust in Christ, those who have yet to turn from their sin and their sinful lifestyle and place faith and trust in Jesus, for those that are living like all that there is is in this world and there is nothing more, this is, this right here is your best life now. And that's what Jesus is basically saying. If you feel like And you want this to be your best life now. And so you surround yourself, which is actually what the book's about. You surround yourself with with comforts and health and wealth of this world and you seek those things out. And that's ultimately what you love and what you honor and what you're living for is the comforts of this world. I mean, Joe Olstein's book is how you can receive that by spiritual positivity in your life. Then... If you live like that, then this is your best life now. But the good news, for those of us who are believers here today, the book, the, the, the book that if, if it was written toward Christians, and it was, then it should be entitled Your Worst Life Now. When Jesus is saying, this is your worst life now. For unbelievers, this life is as close to heaven as you will ever get. But for believers, this life is as close to hell as you'll ever get. And what Jesus is saying is you need to realize that. You need to know that. And then you need to reorder your life around that. I mean, it's easy to, for us in this room, many of us, those of us who, especially those of us who call the Point Community Church our home, it's easy for us to, to, to throw, uh, you know, darts and targets and use your best life now. And Joe Olstein and his teaching and we, oh my gosh, well, this is crazy. What kind of hairs, all that. But the truth is many of us, who would say that in theory, but our lives are living like we believe that. We believe what Brother Joe was saying. It's not true. It's easy for us to understand how asinine your best life now is in theory, as a book title or as a sermon series. But the truth is, how many of us are living like this is our best life now practically? Practically. These are hard sayings and we really need to wrap our minds around what Jesus is saying at and what Jesus is getting at here. Like we often say, you know what? Like, I'm just hating life right now. I'm just hating life. And which means is there's not a lot of enjoyment in life. Things are difficult, things are tough. And so is Jesus saying like, that's how, okay. When you're in that place and when you can honestly say, I'm just hating life right now. Did you say, hey, hey, you're living in, in, in accordance to my will, good job. Is that what Jesus is teaching? No, that's not what he's teaching. He's not saying here that you need to live a life that just where you're hating life. Jesus isn't commending that. He's not commending a perpetual lifestyle of hating life that there could be no enjoyment in life. No, 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 no. In fact, what Jesus speaks about and the Bible teaches is there's a thing called Christian joy or something you get when you get the Holy Spirit. Love, it's the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace. There should be a joy in our lives. We should be um, living for an enjoyment, pleasures, but where do we find those things? Jesus isn't saying we can't enjoy things. Jesus isn't saying we can't have any comfort in this life. Jesus is not saying you need to take a vow of poverty. You need to forsake owning things. You need to put on shirts made of camel hair. You need to become a monk, singing Gregorian chants. Jesus isn't saying those things. Jesus is not saying you cannot own things, even nice things. But what Jesus is saying is that nice things, those things can't own you. But Jesus in this text, when he writes this, Jesus is not attacking ownership. What he is attacking is our hearts, our affections, and what we love. A couple case studies I think that may help us in the Scripture, there's a story of uh, a man who approaches Jesus that wants and inquires about eternal life. And the uh, scriptures tell us that this man is, he's a, he's a rich, young ruler. I don't think that's accidental. I think what Jesus is saying there, it's pretty much everything that our society holds dear, everything that our culture wants. Think about riches and wealth, youth, and power. And this guy's got it all. He's got riches. He's He's young. <laughs> which those of us who've gotten a little older, we know how how futile that is, but nevertheless, he's young, he's got his youth, he's in his prime, he feels good, he's not sick, he's young, and it says he's a person of power, person of esteem. Everybody would go, that's the guy, and he comes and approaches Jesus and asks Jesus, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What can I do to live forever? What can I do to go to heaven? And at first, Jesus, I think, just kind of messes with him a little bit, and he says, you know, just keep the law. That's what you need to do, keep the law. Love your, you know, just... The Ten Commandments, do that. And then this guy, to show his arrogance, he says, I've, I've done those things. I'm good to go. Like, and yet there's something broken inside of him. I'm, I'm moral. I'm keeping the Ten Commandments. I'm doing all the things in there to do. And then Jesus says this, okay then, sell everything that you own and come and follow me. And it says the rich young ruler turns away from Jesus and he leaves very sad. He leaves not receiving Jesus, not following Jesus. He leaves knowing that he has much is what the scripture says. He has a lot. What Jesus has done right there is Jesus has shown him as an indicator as to where his true love lies. It doesn't lie in following Jesus, knowing Jesus, coming and being a part of what Jesus is doing, but his love, his affections, what he feels the closest to, what brings him comfort, what brings him joy is the things that he owns, the things that are in this life. I think that is what Jesus is saying here. That's the word for us. Is there's no problem with you owning things, but don't let your things, don't let your stuff own you. Don't let it own you. There's another place in Scripture where the Apostle Paul, is, um, he has a missionary band that he travels with, and at one place he speaks about a, uh, a man who is with Paul named Demas. And Demas brings Paul great comfort. He travels with Paul. He's on the missionary journeys with Paul. But then as Paul pens uh, 2 Timothy, which is believed to be Paul's last book, Paul, very near to his death, Paul's writing Timothy. And as he writes Timothy, he says that I'm all alone. Even Demas has forsaken me. And this is why he says, Demas, who was in love with this present world, has forsaken me, turned away from me. Following Jesus has a cost. Loving your life in this world means living with this life only in view. You can live for yourself and you can live for this world and you can live for the things of this world. You can live ultimately for comfort, for gaining, for getting, for climbing, for acquiring, or you can live for Jesus. You can live to serve and to follow after Jesus, but you cannot live for both. There is one that your heart will always prefer. And that is what love and hate means here. When Jesus says you can't love your life, you need to hate your life. Hear what Jesus is meaning. Not like a hatred, like we say, oh, I'm hating life now. Or even like a, you know, we think about, oh my gosh, you know, peas. That's me. I hate peas. He's not speaking of it like that. What he's saying is, is there is going to be something that your heart prefers. And which is it? Does your heart prefer the things of this world, the promises that this world gets, acquiring and having and getting, or does your heart prefer me and obedience to me and knowing me and fellowship with me and on and on and on that goes? Does it prefer the things of this world or does it prefer Jesus and the things of his kingdom? And now here's the deal. The cross of Christ frees us to be honest with our own hearts. That you and I living here in Frankfurt, Kentucky in 2019, every one of us, our natural inclination is towards the things of this world. I think probably very few of us, there are some in this room who could say, you know what, no, my heart has been retrained. My mind has been renewed to the point where I don't long for the things of this earth. I don't long for the things. I, I do ultimately long for Jesus that every one of us, I think, have to be honest with ourselves to say, And the cross frees us. I mean, the cross is a picture to say like, you don't get it all correct. You don't get it right. And it frees us to be very, very honest with ourselves to say like, Jesus, if left to myself, I'll choose the things of this world. And I get caught up in the things of this world. I get caught up living for the here and the now and the comforts and the pleasures of this world. And sometimes I I put your things on the back burner. Sometimes I get caught up as Paul talks about. there's There's a pattern of this world that we conform ourselves to. That's why Paul writes like in what is it, uh, Romans the 12th chapter, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. There is a pattern to this world that every one of us, we, we live and we breathe and we eat and we sleep and we listen and we watch and we get included into the conformity. We get conformed, right, pressed into a little cookie cutter of this world. But then what's he say? But be you transformed. And how do you get transformed? You get transformed by the renewal of your mind. Your mind is being, being constantly renewed, which brings me to my last point, which is, well, actually three points, but I'll go quickly. How can we have our minds renewed to the point where we're no longer being conformed to the pattern of this world? What instrument is, is Jesus using? See, Jesus isn't just our example. Jesus isn't just saying to us, although he's saying to us, follow my example by choosing loneliness and death and isolation. like Humility, follow me in this example, where you're giving it away in order to gain it all, where you're letting go of the pleasures and comforts of this life in order to have a greater life, where you embrace suffering as an emblem of God's glory, Saying like, hey, my suffering, it matters. And I'm going to utilize it so that God could be glorified in it. And how is God glorified in your suffering? It's when you're content in your suffering. It's when you can say like, blessed be his name. He gives and he takes away, but blessed be his name. But Jesus isn't just our example in how to do it. You know, like, hey, kids, I want to teach you how to ride a bike. Watch dad ride a bike okay, now here's your bikes, go and ride it. Like he doesn't do that. How good is that? No, you need somebody to put you on the bike and to hold the bike up and training wheels and move you along the way. And Jesus is the same thing. Jesus is both our example, as well as Jesus is both the, the means by which we can acquire this. And when Jesus ascends into heaven. He doesn't just leave us here powerless. He doesn't just leave us with his word, although his word is real and true and powerful. But it's not just that. Jesus also sends his spirit that is working and is active. So let me give you three ways that Jesus helps us. Jesus helps us to break our love affair with this world. It's a statement that I use often, that Jesus is breaking our love affair. How does Jesus help us? How does Jesus help us to hate our lives? How does Jesus help us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow after him? How does Jesus help us to daily reject a self-centered life how does Jesus help us to live for his glory and for his purpose? How does Jesus help us to submit every thought, every word, every deed to his lordship? How does Jesus help us to moment by moment to seek him and to love him and to love others for his sake? How does Jesus help us in our inherent natural selfishness and in our inherent natural pride? How do we live our lives being aware of our natural inclination towards selfishness, towards self-centeredness, towards pride. How does Jesus do it? Three ways. Number one is daily disciplines of prayer and reading the word. There's no genie in a bottle. There's no silver bullet. There's no magic wand. It is these simple, that would appear against the, the paradox, a gospel paradox, that power comes to us as we center ourselves in God's word, and as we pray that Jesus is doing, God is doing. Those are the means by which God has established or ordained to transform you. That's what Paul says in Romans 12 too, Be, Do not be conforming along the pattern of this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. And how is your mind being renewed? It's being renewed as you spend time in God's word. That reading God's word should not be a checklist to work through. It shouldn't just be a way for us to cultivate knowledge, although we're doing that, but ultimately it's also a means for us to stir up our affections. Remember what Jesus is after. He's after what we prefer, what we love. He's after our hearts, our affections. That as we read God's word and as we pray, we should be stirring up a sense of awe and a sense of wonder and a sense of worship towards God that we are reading in order to see the beauty and the majesty of the glory of God. That as we do that, the things of this world are, they're displaced. That the love for this world and the things of this world and the, and the glory of this world, they are, they're being displaced by superior love and superior glory, superior affection. That's the goal in reading God's word. As we read and we pray and we study, the goal is to spend time with Jesus in those places and letting the real powerful Jesus by, the, by his presence, by his spirit, change us, mold us, shape us. Number one, it's the daily discipline of prayer, reading the word. It will not happen apart from that. Number two, it's in serving and in giving. These are great disciplines that break our selfishness you and I should be in the habit of, of giving, giving a portion of our income to spiritual endeavors. There should be a level of sacrifice in our giving. That is a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a painful thing, but it is a good thing for us to write a check and to give it towards spiritual things. That tension that you feel, oh, I want to do it, but I don't want to do it. That's a good thing in your heart when you do it when you serve and uh, other people, they get on my nerves, that's a good thing. It's breaking your selfish disposition. It's means that God has established to break that. It's by serving, it's by giving. And number three, it's through suffering. It's through suffering. Then in suffering, you are reminded that this world is broken. That if all you have are the promises of this world, then they are not much. Eric Reed said he was the uh, camp, camp. He was the camp pastor at Crossings Camp for our students this year. He said this: that many of us we have chosen, we have chosen uh, heaven over hell, but few of us have chosen this earth, this world, right, over or over hell. Is that right? Yeah. Many of us have not, or have, cho- have not chosen heaven over this world. I'm sorry. Many of us have chosen naturally. We say, yeah, I would choose heaven over hell, but few of us have chosen heaven over this world. That we still think everything we have is here found in this world. And how does God break that? He breaks that through personal suffering and the suffering of others, that we're reminded that this world holds very little for us, but Jesus holds it all. And look at the promises. Jesus, he dies but look at the promises that accompany Jesus' death. He produces fruit with his death, that those who serve him, we follow after him, so that ultimately where Jesus is there, we as servants will be with him also. That's Daniel 7. That if anyone serves me, Jesus says, the Father will honor him. Jesus, that's our prayer. Is we want to serve you and we want to follow after you, both in your example that you've set for us, Jesus, and we also want to follow as you give us means and you give us power. The Jesus here, in a second, we're going, to take, we're going to take and remember your death and your resurrection. We're going to remember you as that grain of wheat that fell into the ground. And let us be reminded that we are the fruit that you are producing. We're the fruit that you're producing with your death. Those who love you and follow after you and serve you, Jesus. And Jesus, do your work in us. Continue to do your work. May this even be means of grace for us to remember what you have done for us and who we are in light of it. And may we live lives in congruence to that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.